Thanks for tuning in to Waroni Radio's Talk of the University. This is Episode 3, Professor Colin Klein and Conspiracy Theories. Also joining us, Waroni producer, Laurie Fletcher. Good evening. You're listening to Waroni Radio. My name is Fergus Sherwood. With us today is Dr. Colin Klein, a professor from the ANU School of Philosophy and an expert in the world of conspiracy theories. We'll talk to him about his fascinating research and answer some of your burning questions. Welcome, Professor Klein. We'll get you to start with a little bit of your background about yourself, what you're currently working on. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a, as you say, I'm a professor here at the Australian National University. Uh, if people are wondering, I'm originally American, uh, but I've been in Australia for quite a while now. I think of myself primarily as sort of a philosopher of science. I kind of came into a lot of this thinking about psychology and thinking about, you know, why people have strange beliefs. So I used to be at Macquarie University, worked with some people there who cared about delusions and conspiracy theories would often come up in that context as, you know, kind of analog that was sort of like people with, say, paranoid schizophrenia, but still functional. And so I ended up getting really interested in particularly online conspiracy theories. And then that turned out to be something that became super relevant as they really exploded, especially in the past three or four years. So there's been a lot of attention to the work, which is really nice, and a lot of really interesting collaborators with ANU and elsewhere. What defines a conspiracy theory in official terms? And how does that kind of evolve into a society-wide phenomenon? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. And actually, different researchers will define it slightly differently. So the way I usually work with it is I say, look, there are kind of three ingredients for conspiracy theory. You need you know, something like an official story about an event. And then you need another narrative, which involves powerful people working behind the scenes. Uh, that's the sort of true story, or it's supposed to be the real story. And then part of that is that there's a cover-up. So that the powerful people are not just affecting, you know, against the official story, but they're also um, covering up their own involvement in the actions and their actions. And one of the things that's really philosophically interesting about this is that, you know, the cover up is what makes it very hard to know because it's it sort of on the surface, the world looks exactly like it would if the powerful people weren't doing things because they're trying to keep people from understanding it or understanding what's going on. So. That, that's what makes it particularly hard in many cases to, um, to disprove conspiracy theories because what you take to be obvious evidence that a conspiracy theory is not true, uh, other people can say, well, look, that's just the actions of the powerful people. They've planted this thing or they've put that guy there or he's a shill or whatever. Uh, they found this professor at the ANU to say that you're all crazy, you know, whatever. I think, you know, it's really interesting as a society-wide phenomenon. I think if you look back, you find conspiracy theories, you find it basically across all societies, across all times. Like it's not a particularly new phenomenon. I do think one of the things that you, know, you find them more when you get lack of trust in institutions. So when you don't think, and in particular, when you don't think that the government is going to be open with you or transparent with you, or, you don't, or, you know, government corporations, you know, whoever the bad guys are in the story, then conspiracy theories can really take root. So I think when you see them fluctuate and kind of rise and fall, you know, so in Australian society, for example, it's partly tracking this feeling that like you, can, you can't trust the government in a way that you used to be able to. Your research work at ANU, what's a day in the life of Professor Colin Glein like? <laughs> well, we're in lockdown. So a day in the life is kind of fractured because my son's home from school. So there's a lot of bike riding and uh, kindergarten level math as well. Uh, but when I can find time for work, you know, typically I have a postdoc and we have collaborators both at ANU and elsewhere. 
a lot of what we do is with online conspiracy theories, and we do a lot of big data analysis. So we've got you know a project going now with a couple big uh, collections of tweets. Uh, I've also got some projects, a lot of my earlier stuff I worked on Reddit. And so a lot of this is data analysis and looking at what sometimes are, you know, so some of my work on our conspiracy, you'd have hundreds of thousands of comments and you're trying to find ways to sift through that and find patterns. So it's a lot of, you know, there's programming and then there's kind of stepping back and thinking, okay, what does this all mean? So now we're looking at patterns of tweets. Uh, we've got two data sets, one on kind of anti-vaxxers as COVID arose. So we, we started looking at anti-vaxxers in about November, 2019. And of course that turned out to be serendipitous in some ways, because now we have this very long data set. And similarly, we have uh, a Black Lives Matters uh, data set on Twitter looking over the, that started in early 2020 and goes over the murder of George Floyd. So you get to see a lot of stuff kind of happening in real time as different groups form and fracture and interact with each other. So a lot of it is looking at those social dynamics as much as the content itself. So you get a lot of your data from sites like Reddit, Twitter, that kind of thing. Yeah, Reddit uh, Reddit is fantastic. Reddit will give you a lot. Twitter, you can get a lot. All the Twitter is so big that you, you're only ever getting a sample of what's going on. It's an interesting feature of a lot of this research that some sort like it's very hard to work with Facebook. Facebook won't give you anything. There are data sets of like, you know, some of the smaller like bulletin boards and this sort of thing, but it's very spotty. So, you know, whereas Twitter is very easy to study. So... Yeah, I mean, a lot of this depends partly on what's there and partly which sites will give you access. I'd love to do some stuff, for example, on memes, uh, but a lot of, you know, a lot of the meme stuff, for example, on Instagram or that passes around on Instagram, Instagram is also hard to get stuff off of. So in general, we tend to work with things that are accessible and we use a lot of text because there are a lot of very good tools for text mining. So, yeah, we've seen a lot of your articles in the past year, you know, regarding conspiracy theories, human perception and the disinformation era. What's this fame been like? And are there any really key messages that you want to get across? Yeah, I mean, well, academic fame is not real fame. So I think my uh, my old landlord hears me on the radio sometimes and texts me. That's kind of sweet. Occasionally someone I used to know in Sydney will text me. So, you know, I feel like that's more famous than I ever expected as a philosopher. I guess that's nice. <laughs> um, in terms of main messages, I mean, there, there are one or two. I think the main one that I often try to get across is that, well, two really. One is that conspiracy theories flourish because they give really good stories, really good narratives about the world. In many ways, often they're much better stories than the actual story. So I think COVID is a great case of this, the sort of the story the actual story is probably, you know, someone ate a bat and then they got sick and now we have to stay inside and we're still staying inside. And it's like two years later. That's, that's just dumb. Like nobody likes that. Whereas like, you know, you've got a lab leak, no matter how plausible it is, it feels like the sort of thing that's kind of commensurate with how bad it is. You kind of imagine the action movie with the guy running and trying to hit the big red knob and like the monkey gets out or whatever is supposed to happen. <laughs> So a lot of times, like the narrative pull of conspiracy theories is much stronger than the, you know, the narrative pull of what actually happened. And so it feels like a better explanation. And so one of the messages I try to get across is trying to get people to distinguish between what you actually have evidence for in some sense versus what has that kind of feeling of emotional satisfaction. The other thing I think it's interesting, and I don't want to overplay this, but I think 
the definition I gave before of conspiracy theory didn't require conspiracy theories to be false. And there are actually a lot of really like strange and odd things that have happened. Uh, the CIA did do a whole bunch of weird stuff, particularly in the 60s. And so a lot of times what you find is even the really outlandish conspiracy theories is not they have a germ of truth in them, but if you kind of trace back the history of them, you often get to things that did really happen. So one thing I use a lot, you get a lot of vaccine hesitancy in the US among African-Americans. And if you press on that, you find this kind of chain and it's pretty well documented. You have things like conspiracy theories like AIDS was engineered to kill black people, but you push back on that. And a lot of it goes back to, for example, the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, which I urge people to look up if they're not familiar with. So actual like pretty horrible medical experimentation on African-Americans that continued well into the 1960s. And that happened, like that was really bad. Uh, and that often, so you, it's not like you can say, oh, that's crazy, you know, they would never do bad things to black people, but they did like, <laughs> and that memory kind of lives on. And I think what you find are there's a lot of different you know, a lot of these things where it's not like the thing now is particularly plausible, but the reasons why people are concerned or distrustful, you can often find legitimate reasons there. And I think you know, if you want to get it, you know, if you want to change things, often figuring out that kind of kernel of distrust is often the place to start. I guess, you know, you've been studying conspiracy theories for a while. Which ones would you say are kind of the most fascinating? I know you just mentioned a couple that you know, really have some deep links. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm kind of jaded about actual ones. I do have this fondness for conspiracy theories that don't fit the usual mold. So I often find, like to find these as test cases. So there's a, a famous one that nobody ever likes that says basically JFK was shot by accident. Like there's a whole book on it that it was a secret that... Oswald was there, he was kind of taking a shot at him, but then the Secret Service agent in the follow-up car accidentally shot him, uh, which I think is great. It has this kind of, you know, nobody likes it because although it's a conspiracy theory, it like doesn't have that narrative satisfaction. Uh, I also spent some time reading about the uh, Larry Stylinson conspiracy theory. Uh, this is that the uh, Harry Styles and Lewis Tomlinson of One Direction uh, were in a secret gay relationship for all of one direction and the managers covered it up because it didn't fit with the image. And like, there are like really committed fans who have, you know, whole kind of fantasy articles about this. And I like this because a lot of conspiracy theories are very political and they're often quite right-wing kind of nasty. Whereas this one's kind of cute and it's like clearly people's, you know, fantasies spilling out into the real world, but people make quite long YouTube videos with the same kinds of trips where they're like zooming in on tattoos and they're zooming in on pictures. And so I think one of the things that's interesting about that is it shows that a lot of the things that happen in conspiracy theories really readily attach over to other kinds of, you know, in some ways like much more lighthearted conspiracy theories. It also yeah. doesn't involve anyone like murdering babies, which is <laughs> a little <laughs> bit nicer to think about. So, yeah, I guess, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there in the world. Would you say the COVID-19 pandemic and the increased use of social media has kind of proliferated this rapid spread of conspiracy theories? Yeah, I mean, although I think it's interesting to try to figure out exactly how. So I've been thinking about some of this, uh, the course I'm teaching. So it was very, you know, conspiracy theories, as I mentioned, like they've been, they were common in the past as well. They circulated around. I think what you find now is that you find more diversity of conspiracy theories. So if you were in the past, you might have a conspiracy theory that, you know, 
the the labor party is run by communists and they're gonna like they're the wedge of communist infiltration but it was kind of there'd be one conspiracy theory and like your friends would all believe that one whereas now you go online and you can get just like zillions of different conspiracy theories uh and even if you don't think any one of them is particularly plausible what that does is it kind of builds up your doubt about the official narrative because you see all of these different things and even if actually all of them are crap, I think it's a very natural sort of reaction. I think, oh yeah, but then this guy said vaccines cause autism and this one said that they, you know, they're connected to 5G and I don't know, like if any of this is true, but it seems like there's something bad about vaccines. So I think it's easier to get that kind of core doubt, even if the particular, you don't buy into the particular conspiracy theory. So it's more the like, it's not just that conspiracy theories spread rapidly, but they spread with this kind of diversity as well. So in your opinion, how should society respond to these conspiracy theories? Are they necessarily harmful or do we have a positive use case for them as well? I think, you know, I wish there was an easy answer for this because everyone always, everyone always asks me like what to do about this and I wish I knew. Um, it's tricky, right? Because, you know, as I mentioned before, some conspiracies are actually true. You don't want to cut off that. One of the other messages though that I've been trying to push is that you know, as far as I can tell, there's not really been any conspiracies that were uncovered by amateur sleuthing, by like people poking around on the internet. So the conspiracies we know about, we know because uh, either of journalists or because in many cases, like organs of government, like royal commissions and things like that. So, you know, if you really, the response to a lot of this, I think is more at an institutional level. What you want to do is make sure that, you know, the people who are there, who would uncover conspiracies or uncover problems if they were there are empowered to do that. So I think, you know, in some ways that worrying about social media is worrying more about the symptom than the root cause. What you want to be able to say is like, look, I trust that the government's not doing sketchy stuff with vaccines because I really trust, you know, Atagi and I trust the institutions we have. Uh, if you could say that, then like, you know, a bit of frothy craziness online doesn't matter. So I think, I'm going to think a lot of this is really as much a matter of sort of institution building and building trust in institutions as it is uh, worrying about the, the kind of particulars and how they spread. So looking at kind of the influence of media, especially at like ANU, you know, we see the rapid spread of information through outlets like Baroni and The Observer and ANU Schmidt posting. Do you think that media kind of has an unstated role in shaping perceptions? Oh, yeah. I mean, one thing that media does, if nothing else, is draw attention to, you know, draw attention to particular issues and shaping attention as much as anything. So the idea that you should pay attention to this and not to that is in some ways one of the main ways in which media, you know, shapes your perceptions. So in fact, media doesn't have to even, you know, people talk a lot about media bias, but a lot of what media bias comes down to is bias on what you you know, which things you pay attention to and which things you don't. And you see this, some of this, I mean, I don't know if people realize faculty also look at ANU Schmidt posting, at least I do. Um, <laughs> it's a good way to know if problems are percolating up, for example. Uh, like if you see your colleagues on there, then you know something's gone wrong. So, but you know, you can think of it. So, you know, I have some familiarity with Schmidt posting and I think this is one of the, uh, the interesting things with the internet is there's a real fight for attention around issues. So you get... You know, something will come up and then there'll be the Socialist Alliance take on it and then trying to present it in a way that's going to get more comments there. Or then maybe, you know, another issue will come and try to knock that off. So 
you know, one of the things about online stuff that's very bottom up is this kind of struggle for attention. Whereas outlets more like Waroni or things that have a top-down editorial control, they can make more choices about what's there. But that both both are ways of shaping perception and both are ways of shaping what you pay attention to. So that's kind of like what you were saying in online spaces when you have, I don't know if saturation is the right word, but you have a have a lot of issues and a lot of perspectives that that can kind of become, I guess, a persuasive thing in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the problem with the online stuff is just, you know, there's just such a fire hose of information. So if you think of, you know, what, say, your grandparents' uh, generation would be like, you know, most of your information is coming. Maybe you get the newspaper and you watch ABC News in the evening. And that's going to be the majority of news you get for the day and the majority of news that you could get if you wanted to. Whereas there's like basically infinite stuff out there if you want it now. A lot of it's crap, a lot of it's good, but the, this question of how you find stuff that you're interested in, how you find stuff that would be informative and useful for you, uh, that's really, I think, the, the sort of technological problem that we're still grappling with. Yes, I guess when you go online these days, especially with COVID and conspiracy theories, you're looking at all these things where maybe there's some, there's some information, but then every second post is 5G, you know, microchips, Bill Gates. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that we've done some work on, a lot of people have talked about, we did some work on YouTube on this, that a lot of the internet and algorithms like the YouTube algorithm is a nice one. What it does is it's just there and very neutrally tries to figure out essentially which videos you'd like to watch based on a guess about the sort of person you are and what sort of people who like the videos you like, like other video, you know, the other videos they like. So, you know, if you go on there and like, say your son's really into story bots, it will try to figure out more videos that are like story bots. And if you're like, look, I, I kind of wonder about vaccines and 5G, it'll be like, oh, great. A lot of, I've got a whole bunch more vaccine, you know, 5G vaccine videos for you, like go to town. So it kind of, it tends to take an interest and just sort of amplify it and ramp it up. And so in many of these cases with the sort of more fringy bits of the internet, you don't have to go too far before you start finding more and more stuff that's going to confirm your view. Yeah, I think I've, I've kind of seen some stuff about it's easy to radicalize young people when you have algorithms like this that take a small seed and then kind of just repeat upon it. Yeah. And what's interesting is, you know, we, we did this with a bunch of different uh, seeds and it doesn't always do it. So I'm trying to remember this paper we did a couple of years ago where if you start, for example, there like YouTube is full of gun videos where it's just like dudes with guns shooting at stuff. Uh, and then like, and, and then celebrating afterwards, <laughs> you know, and those don't actually lead you to much more than other dudes shooting at stuff. So it's not, it doesn't get you radicalizing. It's just like, okay, you like watching dudes shoot a washing machine. We got plenty <laughs> of that. Whereas there are some other things. So I think Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, this is sort of like more political, like talking head kinds of things. Uh, those were the ones where it would very quickly get you into more and more radical stuff. So it was the sort of explicitly opinionated, often like very personality driven shows that would give you more and more things. So it's interesting. It's kind of subtle. Like we thought, for example, we might be able to get like survivalist stuff. We looked at something else. It was like building your own house, building houses, log cabins. 
but that just gets you to kind of hippies. It, it doesn't get you necessarily to guns and stuff. Um, so yeah, it, it depends a bit on what you're looking at, but I think the vaccine stuff is definitely, there definitely is this kind of ramping up effect from what we've seen. Moving to look at the future, what ideas and kind of what mechanisms do you think will guide conspiracy theories and kind of disinformation? Uh, I mean, look, I've been thinking about this. Uh, there's a sense in which conspiracy theories are kind of like pornography, like they just jump over to any new uh, medium. I'm sure like, I'm sure if they got rid of pornography on OnlyFans, then it would, the conspiracy <laughs> theories would come in to fill the void. Like uh, there's conspiracy theories on TikTok. There's conspiracy theories on like these platforms that I'm too old to understand. So, I mean, because and again if you think about it if you go back to one of the things i said before if part of the core of conspiracy theories is actually the storytelling aspect either like kind of individual stories or this kind of collective storytelling well that's a lot of what people want out of technology right so it's very natural that it's going to hop over any basically any new technology that's going to be there to tell a story you know so that's why it went out you, know, you had conspiracy theories on radio uh you had conspiracy theories on basically one you just need access and you need something that's there for people to pass on a story and conspiracy theories will jump onto it so where can we expect to see you in this space kind of what will you be working on how can students keep track of your work yeah i mean we continue to work on this we've got a lot of the twitter stuff we're still working on one project that we've been trying to move into uh, is also trying to find good communities online. So there's a lot of work on like kind of toxic communities or bad communities or polarized communities, uh, but trying to look around and find, uh, you know, places where the internet seems to be working well. So I've got a collaboration going with a colleague of mine, Lei Xing Xie, a professor in computer science on uh, the subreddit, Am I the Asshole? Where people kind of post moral <laughs> dilemmas and then debate about them. And it's actually, I mean, it's heavily moderated, but it's actually is very interesting. Like you're actually getting interesting sort of subtle moral distinctions and so on. So we're, we're hoping to wrap up some of that work as well. I'm on kind of reluctantly on Twitter, which I mostly use for self-promotion. If anyone wants to find me there, I, you know, got a website. I also cover some of this stuff. So uh, philosophy 1005, which is logic and critical thinking uh, that's taught every semester too uh, by me. And I do a lot of stuff there about what's called social epistemology. So generally, you know, not just how we know things, but particularly thinking about our social environment and how we, you know, learn things from other people, how that works well, how it can go wrong. I do a week on conspiracy theories. I do a week on like online radicalization stuff. So if you're really interested in this and you haven't taken 1005 already, you know, come back around, do that, get some logic and probability in there as well. Particularly with COVID and the role of influencers, obviously platforms, it's difficult to moderate, but do you think there's I mean, it's difficult to sort of curb their behavior, but how does that sort of working together? And do you think that's really impacted the spread of misinformation? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. And I think there's this interesting phenomenon where people, certain things will end up being sort of more constitutive of your identity or you'll adopt them uh, because they kind of fit with a package of your identity rather than, you know, because they seem otherwise reasonable. So in the United States, mask wearing has basically become like this, like it's become conservatives are avoiding masks uh, in a lot of parts of the country. And that doesn't seem based on particular evidence about it so much as, uh, you know, just like, that's what you do to show that you're a good Republican. And there are parts of the country where, you know, the mask, there's kind of hyper mask wearing where people won't take them off, even where the 
public health authorities say it's okay, but as a similar kind of identity signaling mechanism. So I think influencers are a really interesting, really powerful part of this because I think with this a lot with health influencers, for example. So you see a lot of this um, in parts of Instagram, for example, where it's like, look, here's this guy and he's talking about his workouts. And like, you know, I follow a few people are like, oh yeah, that's a good workout. And they're like, and here's what I think about apple cider vinegar. And I'm like, okay, that seems a little bit crazier, but whatever. And then, oh, and by the way, you know, COVID is spread by 5G. And yeah, and I, I, I think, well, obviously that's silly, but you can see a lot of people were like, well, look, you know, I like, I like this package. I like this person. So I'm willing to buy into the other, like, you know, nuttier bits of it in some ways. And again, you get this before. Uh, so a lot of the early anti-vax stuff was spread by celebrities, uh, celebrities who had, you know, no particular medical knowledge, but you like the celebrity, you kind of buy into the stuff they say. And I think, again, the availability of Instagram for something like influencers just makes that much easier and makes it much more diverse. So.